Welcome to Thrive, Mental Health and the Art of Living Free. I'm your host, Melissa Clark, a professional counselor in the Dallas area with the passion for helping you overcome challenges, process painful emotions, and understand your God-given identity. Thank you so much for being here. I believe listening to this podcast will leave you feeling excited, educated, and empowered. We are in the middle of a series talking about the hard things that we are encountering in our day-to-day life and just difficult seasons. Last week, we sat down and talked with Lisa Whittle to discuss her new book, The Hard Good. And I feel like no matter who you are, what stage of life you're in, you're probably going through something difficult, whether it's a quote, big loss, small loss, and everything in between. We are all going through hard stuff. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, to that episode, I definitely recommend you go back and give it a listen. Today, we're sitting down and talking with Amanda Cunningham, who is the founder of the Glory Days Co., a company that provides organizational tools for parents and caregivers of special needs children. Amanda's daughter, Rory, was born with an unexpected diagnosis of Down syndrome. The early months following Rory's birth were filled with confusion and overwhelm as Amanda attended all the doctor's meetings and therapy appointments and waiting through the newness of becoming a stay-at-home mom of two. You can only imagine if you have had a newborn, and then to add on the shock of having a special needs child. And so she created some amazing products, organizational tools and planners, and we're going to talk about those things, but we also dig into a conversation about grief and what it's like to have an unexpected medical diagnosis, which I think most medical diagnoses are unexpected. And so even if you don't have a special needs child or have a special needs loved one, I hope you listen to this conversation because we we go beyond just one community into the global loss of what it's like to have hard things. We have all grieved something. And so Amanda talks with us about how she has encountered the grieving process personally and what that has been like for her and what the tools that she used to help her cope and to not only survive during that season, but thrive. And you know, I love that word, which is why I named the show after it, but how she moved forward and how she didn't get stuck. And so without further ado, here's my conversation with Amanda. I want to welcome to the show, Amanda Cunningham. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I feel like we're already fast friends. We've been chatting away before we even started the interview and you're such a lovely person. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and this amazing product that you have come up with. Well, like you said, my name is Amanda Cunningham. I live in North Central West Virginia with my family. I have three children, ages eight, four, and two, and I've been married to my husband, Evan, for 10 years now. We were unexpectedly dropped into the disability community upon with the arrival of my daughter, Rory, in 2017. On her birthday, we realized that she had Down syndrome after she was born. So mm-hmm. that's how we landed here. And the Glory Days Daily Planner and all of our other products were created out of a personal need that I experienced in the months and years that followed her birth. Mm-hmm. So good. And it's a beautiful, beautiful planner. We'll, we'll, we'll skip back to that in a minute. Tell us a little bit about the statistics. I know that October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month. So tell us a little bit about like how many families are dealing with special needs and what it's like for you to now be a part of that community that you had no idea. A lot of people, they find out during pregnancy, but you had no idea until her birth. <laughs> 
No, we didn't. We didn't know. We had all the, and a lot of people ask, how did you go through nine months not knowing that your child had this disability, this extra chromosome? And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that I had a son prior to her who was neurotypical. I was 28 years old at the time of conception, which on average, you know, women at 35 and over have this occurrence happen. So my doctor did not push the blood testing on me. He kind of phased past it because of our previous experience and I didn't think too much of it. And so it just went unnoticed. There was no markers on the ultrasound. I had regular prenatal care. Everything was in line as it should be. And so that's how we were surprised with her diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I thought that we were a minority, but in reality, we're not. 2.9 million families are raising a child with a disability under the age of five in the United States. Wow. So it's pretty common. Not all disability is seen on the outside. It's, right. it's different, manifests in different ways. And that's something we probably should communicate more so that you don't feel so alone when you do receive a diagnosis. On average, it was, I think one in 700 women will deliver a child or be diagnosed with a Down syndrome diagnosis of their child. I had a one in a thousand chance based on age. So it was like winning the lottery is what we say. <laughs> Yes. Do they have any idea of how that happens or is it just one of those like chromosomal flukes? Well, there's a lot of different conversations around that subject. There's no clear medical explanation. Um, Some groups have a, a train of thought that it could have something to do with your methylation. Um, So if you take folic acid versus folate and your body has a mutation, MTHFR is what it's called mutation you cannot absorb folic acid in the form that it's predominantly found in prenatals and in our food even. So it could be related to a methylation issue, but then you can talk to some geneticist who will say it's just random, that there's no explanation. It just happens. I think it was, I may get this statistic wrong, but I think it was like 90% of trisomy 21 pregnancies lead to miscarriage. So she had a very rare chance of actually being here and being healthy and thriving. What is her, like, what is her day-to-day life like now in terms of normalcy and just who she is as as a toddler? Well, she's, she's wild. She's full of energy, (laughs) like in the, in the best way she's wild, so loving and joyful and sassy and independent in so many ways. And she's in a a peer classroom with students her age for pre-K. She loves her brothers. She loves cats. Um, So I would say that she is just your average four-year-old. The things that make Rory's days different different are she needs some support physically due to low muscle tone, which is something that's pretty normal in trisomy 21. She needs support getting up and downstairs, sometimes climbing in and out of things. She's not as coordinated as she might have been without that extra chromosome. Her speech is delayed, but that does not stop her. She's constantly trying to chit chat <laughs> with us and talk to us. I've like I was saying to you earlier, I understand her language pretty well, whereas the average person would take some time to clearly understand what she's trying to communicate. Sometimes she has a hard time with concepts if it's not a visual, which that's pretty normal with learning ability in Down syndrome, that you have to provide a visual to a mm. concept for them to grasp it. So I'd say overall, she lives a pretty average life. She's right in line with her brothers when they're outside playing or doing anything and she can hold her own in a lot of different situations. 
Mm, That's amazing to hear. So this was an unexpected diagnosis. How has it brought a special richness to your life that you wouldn't have otherwise expected? Talk to us about like the goodness that's come through something that could have been really hard and I'm sure is really hard and continues to be probably hard and scary. Yeah, it can be. I never want to like gloss over the fact that it is challenging at times. There are things, I mean, just this week, my husband and I were dealing with some emotions around her diagnosis and we're four years in. I think that that's something that's going to come in waves for the entirety of her life. A way that I describe it that might make people understand it a little bit more is for 28 years, I had an idea of who my daughter was going to be. You know, when I was growing up and fantasizing about a family and a life, I pictured a daughter a certain way. And then all in one swoop, you know, that was changed the day that she was born. And I had to get to know who I became a mother to, which with all parents that happens, but it's a slow unraveling over 18 years of a life. It doesn't happen within seconds on their birthday. You get waves of that ghost of who you thought you were going to have versus who you have. And that happened just this week. So I don't ever want to gloss over that that doesn't come still, that that grief isn't there at times. Um, I just know how to cope with it better and speak to it logically and not let it fester, you know, an emotional response that inhibits me to care for and love who I have, which there's no reason that I shouldn't. She's fantastic and everything's wonderful with her. It's just a process of coming to terms with what's possible and also pushing back on that societal conversation of what a life with a disability looks like. Because I think a lot of my grief and a lot of my fear was rooted in the story that I had been told for 28 years about what somebody with Down syndrome would look like and the value of their life and what was possible for them. And I had to, you know, let that go and, and let her tell me what that was. What was that picture that you had as far as like what society told you of somebody with special needs? Dismal. Mm. You know, I, it was one of the first reactions and this is pretty, it's, it's so cliche to think that this was one of my first thoughts when my daughter was born, but when she was born, um, they took her from me rather quickly. She had a skin tag on her neck and I didn't really get to see her. You know, they rub them down. They took her and they laid her on a warming station and a, pediatric nurse practitioner came in and was looking at her while I was in the second phase of delivery and yelled across the room, this baby has trisomy 21. And that was how we heard the news. And my OB turned around and was said, what, like, what are you talking about? And she said, this baby has down syndrome. And then it was like all hands on deck, you know, everybody in the room. Finally, my OB gave her back to me, said, give her her baby. Cause she was so concerned with bonding. And when I was holding her, the first thing that came in my mind after like, look at her eyes. They're so beautiful. Everything's beautiful. I was like, who's going to love her outside of her family. I thought of her wedding day. That was the first thing I thought of in relation to down syndrome, taking something from her that society told me wouldn't be possible for someone with trisomy 21, because you just assume that they're never going to have a level of independence or competency or be given the chance to love and be loved by somebody outside of their family. All of that story was present in that moment when I was holding her. And that's the first that I thought I had because of the social exposure over the years, you know, and then you go into all of the details about jobs and growth and where her life was going to go. Mm-hmm. 
now I'm just like, I'm taking that all in and just like so much happened within that one moment. And I'm, I'm even thinking as like a lay person, I don't even know in that moment, I would have even known what trisomy, like, I think my brain would have been like fritzing out, like, what is that? And just like panic mode. I mean, did you know, like right away that that's what it was or when they, well, when they said down syndrome, I did, but when I saw her, I knew in the moment I was in a state, like I, I knew my logical brain knew as soon as I saw her eyes, I looked at my husband. I said, it looks like she has down syndrome, but immediately everyone around me, my mother was in the room. My husband was in the room. We had a photographer who's a close friend of mine and everybody was like, Oh no, no, no. Like she looks like your grandmother. She looks like her brother, you know, like, and then it was, it was a really hard moment. You know, we were pulling out pictures of, of family members to try to see, you know, who mm. she didn't look similar to me or her brother and all it's, it was just a very challenging moment in my life. There was a, it was just shock. Do you know stories of people who have trauma, who it's like, it's this silence around them, even though everything's going on. Yeah. It was like that for days is the best way I can describe it. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is fight, flight, or freeze the freeze mm-hmm. part of it. Yeah. Because, yeah. You're trying to make sense of something that doesn't really make sense. It's, it's, well, And something that too, uh, I think I was trying to make sense of is I loved her. Yeah. I loved her. Like I loved her when she was in my belly. I loved her when she was on that warming table. I loved her when they put her in my arms and everyone around me was sad and telling me that I wasn't going to love her Mm. by the way that they were behaving and they were acting. And I think that's what was so confusing and shocking to me is like, I felt love. I felt like I loved her and I wanted her. But at the same time, everything around me was telling me I should be scared and sad and all of these other things, except for that OB, the OB that I had who actually physically delivered her. She was so concerned with bonding. She didn't discuss Down syndrome at all. She discussed the little girl that I was holding and I was going to raise and take care of. And she was the only one who was having that consistent conversation while all the other medical providers were very upset for me and telling me all the things that could possibly go wrong. Mm -hmm. Don't you love that? It's their job. I mean, I understand. (laughs) Yeah. It's difficult. They they do have a way of poking. I feel like sometimes at least it feels like that in the moment. So I'm hearing you say that you were very much in love with your daughter the moment you saw her, but there was a lot Mm -hmm. of conflicting evidence, if you will. And scary stuff being thrown at you, but it sounds like your love really grounded you. It did. Yeah. When I was with her, I wasn't, I wasn't too afraid because we were left alone. We were transferred from the hospital. I delivered her in because it wasn't large enough to do the cardiac care that she needed. So we got transferred not far from where we were. And I was alone because my husband went home to take care of our three-year-old at the time because we'd been gone for four days. And in those hours, those are such sacred, special hours that I spent with her. I mean, a lot of prayer, a lot of reflection, a lot of like just a building of a trust between her and I, like it's wild that this baby arrives in such frantic circumstances, but yet they're just so peaceful and calm. And my mom made a comment when we got home about Rory being like, what is everybody so worried about? (laughs) Like that she's just, you know, here and just, she was such a cute baby. Mm. You know, she was just these big, beautiful almond eyes and just so squishy. She was a beautiful baby. And so when I just focused on her, 
like who she was in those moments, everything was fine. It was okay. Mm -hmm. It's when I allowed everything else to come in is when the overwhelm and the fear and the grief would really set in. Mm -hmm. There's as a counselor, I always like have a hundred different questions in my head. So I'm going to like lay out a couple of questions and then we'll kind of sort through them. But I'm like wondering like how your family, like what their response was. I'm wondering like what your coping skills were. So let's start with your family. Like, what was that like? Because I'm hearing you say that you're very much grounded in love, but I'm curious, like, how did your husband respond and your, your mom and external family members? Like, what was that like for you as a new, you were already a mom, but a new mom again, in love with your child and having these external factors? There was a lot of different responses. So my immediate family, well, first I'll start with Evan. We'll start with the inner circle. So Evan and I, we became our best selves in our marriage through this Mm -hmm. experience. Um, Drastically different experience than with my first child. My first child was rocky. That was a rocky acclimation to our new roles. And I really did not allow him to support me in that transition. When Aurora came, it no longer was a birth happening to me. It was one that happened to both of us. And I was like aware of that because he was in the room. He experienced all the same information at the same time. And he had the same love and expectation for who his child was going to be. An added layer. This was the first female in his family line in 35 years. Oh, wow. So that was a whole other thing, you know, to, for that to happen. And we were passing the grief back and forth. So he really held me for the first couple weeks and then he went into a grief process and I was really holding him and then it would go back and forth. And then we just kind of came together on the same line eventually. So I feel like this experience took us from a naive acceptance of our vows based on young love to from where I sit and feel unless something wild happens, a lifetime marriage, you know, like this has just been something we've walked through. That's really rooted us together. I want to go back to Evan and your marriage. Cause I feel like that you have some like really good wisdom in that. What advice do you have for couples who are going in the grief in a grief process together? Maybe not with a special needs child, but just with anything. Cause like you've said before the interview started, there's a universality to grief and our grief may be different, but there's a similarity to grief. And so I'm curious, like what advice would you have for a couple and a grieving process together to be bonded and not torn apart from devastation. I think what set us up for success was before we were allowed to leave the hospital, before they discharged us, they made us speak to a grief counselor. This grief counselor was a young male, probably in his mid thirties, who was very relatable to my husband. He didn't talk in ideas. He talked in tactical application to my husband. And in our circumstance, I can only speak to what we were going through truly, but I felt like in our circumstance, it was really important for Evan to respond appropriately because I already felt so vulnerable in the means of just delivering a baby, delivering, delivering a baby that my husband did not expect to be responsible for the rest of his life, you know, and as women, we tend to have less flexibility in our decision-making of can we raise this child or can we not in comparison to a man? It's much easier for a man to walk away from a circumstance than it is for a woman, just being completely frank. 
So there was a lot of fear, you know, like, is, mm-hmm. is he going to want to do this? Even though I knew who he was, like, I know that's not who he was, but that fear and vulnerability was really real. And so that grief counselor told him very specifically, women remember things in visual snapshots when they're in circumstances like this and how you respond to this very moment will be how she remembers you and her ability to trust and be vulnerable with you for the rest of her life. And it can make or break your marriage. He's like, so if you don't communicate clearly, process appropriately, and spend time together versus separating apart and handling this in a siloed approach versus in a together approach, your marriage will fail. And by the grace of God, Evan listened to every word he said. I mean, he really, he came in, he communicated, he shared his emotions with me, which wasn't typical. You know, men don't typically outwardly express their emotions. Um, and he took his advice on how the ways that men need to behave to process emotion. I mean, he made a statement that men have to do like physical work sometimes to process heavy emotion it was like just chop wood, even if you don't have to and carry it from one <laughs> side of the, the yard to the next, because you mm-hmm. need to get it out of your body. Yeah. Cause women tend to like cry heavily and release it that way. And men don't, and then it can, it can cause a lot of internal problems. So I would say if you're facing grief and you don't know how to cope together, find somebody who's not just going to listen to you talk and not give you fluff, who's going to give you tactical application for walking through what you're facing Mm -hmm. because it takes action. Like we had to take action on what we were going through. We couldn't just absorb it all. And I would imagine that you have to keep taking that action. Just like you mentioned four years later, I mean, this grief process isn't a one and done type thing. It's a, it's going to be a lifetime experience and to be able to communicate and to trust each other. Such a, it's such a beautiful story, even though it's born out of such hardship and devastation. Yeah, it was really hard. And I think just this week when we had that difficult conversation, the reason he feels like he can say what he needs to say is because he knows that I'm safe to say it to, that I'm not going to take it to extremes. I'm not going to doubt his commitment or his love for his child. A lot of the times, even if you have conversations with mothers, like in a mother group who have neurotypical children or physically able children, and we talk about the stresses of motherhood. Everybody always, always follows it up with, but you know, I love them. I love them. I love this. I love being a mother, even though I'm exhausted and this is so hard. And I really would just love to not do it for like 10 days. I still love them. We don't have to say that to each other. We know we don't have to say that. And I'd say that that's where that past experience has really affected it is no matter how we're feeling in the moment about her diagnosis and how it's manifesting, there's no doubt about our commitment and love to her, to each other, and to our larger family legacy that we're trying to build. Mm-hmm. And when you have the ability to be honest about how you're feeling, you can move past how you're feeling. That's so good. I lo- I'm going to say that statement again. When you're honest about how you're feeling, it's going to help you to be able to, to process it. Mm-hmm. And so, so many times I think we're just caught up in a state of trauma and survival mode. How do you personally like take that time to recalibrate and process your emotions because you're a busy mom of three and creating this company glory days and doing all the things plus, you know, trying to keep your house. So how do you create that time and those rhythms to, to process your emotions and, and to grieve because it is so continual. 
I, talking and writing are my two ways that I handle it. I have to get it out of me. Like it can't stay in here or I'm not going to move past it. So those are my two coping mechanisms for dealing with heavy emotions is talking and writing. In terms of logistics of everyday life, it ebb and flows. Sometimes I'm really good at being organized and sometimes I'm horrible. I say all the time, you know, I created a planner, not because I'm the queen of organization, but because Mm -hmm. I'm frankly the opposite. And I needed that resource myself because I wasn't staying on top of things. So it comes and goes. When I utilize the tools that I, I've created for my own support, I do much better than if I'm not using them. Mm-hmm. And help too. COVID really brought me to my knees on trying to be misindependent. I After we got through the scary part of, you know, you can't have people come around and, and all those things. I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this alone anymore. If we have it in our budget for me to do Instacart, call somebody to do the deep cleaning of our home you know, have a babysitter come and be a mommy helper and be here with me while I'm taking care and homeschooling and doing all those things. I do it now. I don't make the excuse that I should be doing this all alone. Mm, Yeah. I think sometimes we put a lot of pressure and expectations on ourselves to do all the things and we crumble underneath that pressure. And it's also a process, right? I mean, some days we're rocking and rolling and other days are really hard what are the triggers for you that maybe spark those feelings of grief or feelings of loss? Because like you said, you, the moment you held her, you had to let go of one picture to begin to embrace another picture. The things that trigger, I would say the typical milestones that you would go through with a child. So she's four and I still haven't heard. I love you. I know she Mm -hmm. loves me, but I haven't heard that. So every night before we, we go to bed, we say, I love you. We try to sign. I love you. All those kind of things. I'm starting to think she's doing it on purpose (laughs) (laughs) just to have control of the situation because she can say other things. Um, Like last week we started dance class with 12 four-year-old ballerinas And I'm the only mom who has to be on the floor to help assist her take this class. And so that was, that's a big trigger because, you know, everybody's behind the glass in the observation room watching this ballet class and I'm on the floor doing pirouettes with my daughter, you know? So that's one of those things that you have to, you have to process as you're going through it because it's very obvious the difference. So it's things like that, that trigger those waves of grief or, or discomfort. I would probably transition the word to discomfort at this point, Mm -hmm. four years in. Can you say what the difference means for you between grief and discomfort? Grief was rooted in my past expectations, like the loss of something. And the discomfort now is about her pointing out what I feel insecure about within myself. I don't know if I'm articulating this. No, that's a really good concept. I love that. A lot of the things that cause me discomfort in relation to Rory's diagnosis are coming from my own insecurities. And she has really pulled the veil back on what I defined myself by and what I allowed myself to believe brought me value to the world and acceptance by the world. So for instance, like when we go into dance class and she's not acting appropriately in comparison to her peers, because she's not, doesn't have the intellectual ability to, in this moment, she will eventually, but it's not there yet. And that's why we're there. Her behavior triggers my insecurity of people judging me, not acting appropriately in social situations. If it be how I process something or something I say, you know, you understand what I'm saying? So it's not 
a discomfort with her. It's a discomfort. She makes me realize within myself. That's it. I love that differentiation between grief and discomfort and just really realizing that through our hardships, sometimes it's not the circumstances that we're struggling with. It's really how we are responding or not responding to those circumstances and feelings of inadequacy and insecurity, I think are pretty human as well, as far as in most circumstances. Yes. How have you been able to ground yourself in truth? And I would imagine too, just what you're sharing, I would want to control everything that I can control. I struggle with anxiety. And so whenever I can't control things, I tend to feel pretty anxious about it. And therefore, you know, I try and control as much as I can to get security, but then that becomes you know, not healthy either. And so thinking about it from that lens, Amanda, what, how do you grapple with that? Like you're in dance class and nope, I just have to be able to let Rory be Rory and me be me. And if these moms want to judge me, they judge me. I mean, how do you kind of walk, talk yourself through that? In real time, I have to, in real time, like as we're sitting there, I have to tell myself like quitting is not an option because you're uncomfortable. Like it's, it's absolutely not an option just because it's hard to be here. It's hard to show up for me based on my anxieties that are being triggered in that moment. She needs to be there. She wants to be there. She looks forward to going. She wants to wear the tutu. She wants to wear the special shoes. She loves to spin and dance around. It's something that she has enjoyment doing. And I'm not going to ever take that from her just because it's difficult to walk through, you know? So I'd say that it's the love for her that I have. And it's, if, if I'm not willing to do it, who is like, if I, if I'm not willing to be in those spaces, there's, it makes me emotional. Very few other people are going to give her those opportunities. Mm Well, she can't advocate for herself and you're her advocate. Yeah, for sure. I just, she's just given me so much. It's unbelievable. Like if I go back and I just look at who I was four years to now and the way that I process things and process things today in comparison, it's very different. It's a lot stronger. I just have a lot more strength than I did before to stand in my beliefs and to just authentically be myself and say what I need to say. The word tenacious comes to mind. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you seem very tenacious and resolute to do things for your daughter and to really take the the charge, if you will, to to steward her life and to see value and meaning and who she is as a person. I think that's really beautiful. What would you say to the person maybe listening or has a family member with a special needs and is struggling to maybe see the hope and and value and joy in their life? And I know every situation is different and one does not, you can't compare apples to apples because every diagnosis is different, even whenever it's the same label. It manifests differently. So I don't know if you've heard this in your um, faith background, but they say like, when you don't have faith, go to somebody who has it um, to encourage you to build yours back up. That's basically the same thing I would have to say here is if you are struggling to see that there's still a good life to be had after a diagnosis, seek out people who are already living in that season. And that's what made all the difference for me. When we left the hospital, no one gave me a connection to community. I had to go and find it. And I found it online through searching hashtags on social media platforms by watching YouTube videos of people who document their life, raising children with disabilities and medical complexities 
and they were happy and they were doing things. And it might've been in, in an adapted situation. It might be a little bit different, but they were still doing it. They were still living their lives and enjoying them. And that gave me something to hold on to, like I, to know that it's possible was enough. Yeah. And then just, I would imagine just taking one little step at a time, dance class, a soccer class, and just being willing to try new things. And maybe it doesn't yeah, work out, but maybe it does. Yeah. And I didn't start there. I mean, I can remember when she was first born, we got enrolled into an early intervention program. Our state offers called birth to three. And my caseworker was pushing me to go to kinder music. I don't know if you've heard of kinder music. I couldn't do it. I couldn't go sit in a class with 25 new babies who didn't have a disability with my child who did because it, it hurt too much. And that's okay. That's okay to understand that you're not there yet. And it took me months to get there. You know, there's still circumstances that when I walk into a room, just like dance, that it flares, it triggers those original emotions, but they're not as loud anymore mm-hmm. and they're easily mm-hmm. quieted in comparison. So I just want to say that like a lot of the times when we do go look at those families, we can sometimes shame ourselves that we're not where they are with the acceptance. Um, and there's a lot of years that are behind that and a lot of work behind that. So just give yourself the grace to get there. Well, I'm hearing you say shame. I'm hearing you say insecurity and expectations are probably the biggest roadblocks to living a life of joy and peace and hope. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of, I mean, I had a lot of shame over how I felt and that was helped by connecting with people who went through it. We were talking before we started recording about how there's women all over the world, all over the world that go through this process and that I'm now connected with. And the process of acceptance, majority of the time, is so mirrored to what I walked through, mm. which is reassuring that I shouldn't have shame, that I was going through it. I was trying to fight through it to get to where I am today. And that's, that's all you can do. Yeah. I mean, Brene Brown says it. shame is that I am bad. And so when we start to have shame, it just, it's a blanket that we wear and it hinders everything. We can't do anything. And so by saying, I feel bad about this, or I feel this, I feel that, that takes away the shame and takes off the shame and allows us to be able to process and move forward. So you did, I have your lovely um, planner here. So pretty. And I love all the other little things too, like the medication journal, your gratitude journal and dreaming journal. And then of course the therapy journal, you know, that's, (laughs) I love that. Tell Tell us about the resources that you've created and the heart behind it. They're so pretty too. My daughter is like going through it and she's like, I want that. I want that. I want that. I'm like, no, those are mine. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, um, like I said, I went home from the hospital, was not really connected to resources and was quickly dropped into a lot of early intervention. So we had about seven therapists. We would be in therapy Monday through Friday, most of the time trying to keep track of what my responsibilities were was pretty heavy, especially as I was trying to process my emotions. And there was just a day that I kind of got sick of myself and was like, you need to get up and do the work because the therapists were training me on how to do the work with her in the days between our appointments. And so I had these big windows in my living room that I wrote a therapy tracking chart on and started to implement utilizing that with an agenda book. And when I went to the marketplace to try to find something that was similar to what I was utilizing, there was, you know, 2017, there was nothing. There wasn't anything available at Target or on Pinterest, on Etsy. I couldn't find it. So I created it for myself and realized, you know, other people might need this. And we launched it in November of 2018. 
we've sold these products all over the world. We're, um, oh yeah, it's a really amazing. She's touched so many lives. We have another launch on October 20th with the new designs that you're holding and their products to support you in the role you've been called to. So it's an agenda book that takes your everyday average life and combines it with the life of a parent navigating a diagnosis, therapies, medical appointments, and it's beautifully designed and it has therapy tracking. It has your appointment reminders, meal planning, hour by hour breakdown, the list could go on and on. It's all in one place. And then we have the breakout journals to be utilized as your child grows and their team evolves. Um, A lot of our teams are disjointed. We have an IEP team and then we have private providers. No one is communicating with each other. So we cross use that therapy tracking journal between all our providers. So everybody can know what one another is doing and work with each other versus apart. Medication tracking is just what it, it says it is. It helps you track supplements and daily medications. The dreaming journal was important to me because it was, I thought my thought life didn't matter after Rory was born Mm -hmm. because I never had had those thoughts that this would be my life. So how did this manifest? How did this come about? And then I realized like my thought life has so much influence over how we're going to be moving forward. And it was created to help you kind of restart those gears, get them moving in the right direction again after the shock, shock of a diagnosis. And we have some sticky pads and some other things. So there's a whole list. You can jump on our website and check it all out or just DM me on Instagram and I'd be happy to answer questions. Well, it's so encouraging. You're such an inspiration because I think sometimes when it comes to grief and loss, it can just feel like a dead end and that's, that's it for us. And the power of dreaming and the power of our thoughts. Scripture tells us that that our thoughts have so much power over who we are and how we see and, um, There's just so much truth and wisdom that comes from challenging our thoughts and resources like this, I feel like are so, they're not just like to help you stay organized or help you to really move forward in your life with more purpose and intention and hope and peace. And so they're really, it's beautiful, but also extremely helpful. So well done. Thank you. I hope the overall like story of what happened with Rory and where we're at today makes somebody realize that they have so much more ahead of them. Because I would have never believed it if you would have told me that we would be doing what we're doing. I would have never believed it. Well, where can we find you? At theglorydaysco.com. And then on Instagram, we're at theglorydaysco. Well, thank you, Amanda, so much for being here. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me this week on Thrive, Mental Health and the Art of Living Free. Be sure to visit my website where you can subscribe to get the show notes and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. That way you never miss a show. While you're at it, if you could help me out by adding some stars to the rating and tell a friend about the show. See you next week.